You are listening to the Trinity Presbyterian Church Podcast from Petaluma, California. Here is this week's sermon. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. We're back on page 1 again. And a few Bibles and probably any Bible. We are going to particularly look today, starting at verse 26, and read through chapter 2, verse 3. stand for the reading of God's word. Genesis 1, starting verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And every beast of the earth, and every bird of the heavens, and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. On the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Amen. Elsewhere, Scripture speaks of the idea of singing a new song whenever God does some new amazing thing. So then here in Genesis 1.27, you have the first new song. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created The first poetry in the Bible is an interlude in the sixth day of creation. Indeed, this climactic creative event is worthy of singing praise to God. As the pinnacle of his creation, God has made a creature in his own image. We celebrate that in Magadini, the image of God. We celebrate it, and today we will study the image of God. Let's begin in verse 26 then with the words that say, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Here God first describes man as a special creation. Notice the shift in grammar. It goes to the first person plural. Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. So far, his other divine fiats have been in the third person singular. Let there be light or whatnot. Let there be this or that. So when he changes here now to the first person, it highlights something unique, something special, something different is going on 
as God here creates man. But you'll notice it's not just that he switches from third person to first person, but he switches from singular to plural. There are at least two plausible explanations that have been offered for this. Uh, one is that God is speaking here to a sort of heavenly council of angels. That he speaks to them in a sort of royal we. Of course, the notion of a divine council is not problematic itself, because we, we see elsewhere in Scripture uh, that there is such a divine council source described elsewhere in other parts of Scripture. But that view, the challenge with that view, it does require you to understand the grammar in some majestic plural. Because if it's not a majestic plural, then it would basically, the inference it would be that God and angels are together making man in their together image. And see, that would be a problem. Because angels didn't create man. God created man. So an alternate view is that this hints at the Trinity. The light of the New Testament teaches that the one God has eternally existed in three persons. Many Christians have found hints at that truth here in the Old Testament, uh, in other places as well, but, but this is one of the places that they, 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 they discern a possible hint at the Trinity right here. In fact, some have even wondered that the very Hebrew word for God might hint at that. We've got our translations here, God did this, God did that, but actually throughout the Old Testament and certainly in this uh, section here as well, uh, this generic word for God in the Hebrew is actually uh, typically in Hebrew Elohim, which of course all you good Hebrew students go, that's plural. If you were to translate Elohim outside of the Bible, you would translate it as gods. But in Scripture, when that word is used, it's always treated as if it's a singular. And meaning, you know, you have to pair, if you remember your grammar lessons, right? You pair a, a subject with a verb, and many languages like Hebrew, you have to have a, if you got a plural noun, you have to have a verb that accepts a plural noun. And if you have a singular noun, you use a verb that accepts a singular noun. Well, here, Bible uses Elohim plural, but always with singular verbs. In other words, it's treating Elohim as the one God, which is actually, of course, the teaching. And so some have wondered if, if that's also a little hint at the Trinity. Uh, but here in verse 27, if we understood then the plural grammar to express an inter-Trinitarian conversation, that would certainly explain what, what would be going on right here then. And we know elsewhere from Scripture that all three persons of the Trinity are credited as being involved in creation. And so this would not contradict our theology, but would complement what we understand from elsewhere if this was essentially saying, let us, Father, Son, or Holy Spirit, make man in our divine image, in our likeness. And so why wouldn't we dogmatic about that? It's certainly implausible and a lot to commend to itself interpretation. Let's dig then really into the heart of today's passage and consider this idea of the image of God. What does it mean for man to be created in God's image? You will note that for all the creatures made so far, it's repeatedly said, God made them all according to their kinds. Each kind, each main species 
of plant and animal, God made distinct. Humans, then, would be their own unique kind of creature. On, on a side note, this is another place where the theory of evolution suffers. They've yet to be able to show one kind of creature through macroevolution becoming a different kind of creature. But I digress. Uh, so that right here, we see in verse 26, there's something different about us and all the other creatures. And of course, even people who don't believe in the Bible, even those people who believe in some of that evolution stuff I just mentioned, they can't help but acknowledge there's something different about humans. Of course, they might speak of humans being intelligent life forms. I don't know with that language. It's true. Uh, people know, they know it, that humans have a self-awareness, a, a rationality, a creativity, a moral sense, even a religious sense that no other creature on earth has. The Bible tells us why. Right here. Because man was created in God's image and likeness. There's a reason why we're so different than the other creatures. There are two words used here to describe this. Image and likeness. Verse 26. That word image in the Hebrew has a connotation of something cut out or, or sculpted like a statue. The word likeness in the Hebrew has a connotation of something that, that shares a resemblance to something else. Will looks like his dad kind of idea. Uh, so theologians in have spent a lot of time, you know, they'll talk about intricate questions. They spend a lot of time asking the, the relationship between image and likeness. And interestingly, some think, you know, what's the difference between the two? Some think that the description of, of likeness is a way to limit the description of the image, that we're only like God. Others think likeness is a way to heighten the discriminative image. We're like God. Uh, I, I think what's probably best to understand is not to overthink this point. There's a lot of Hebrew parallelism throughout the Bible. Image and likeness are sort of complementary ideas that bring us to this notion of being made in the image of God. And in other words, there is a way that we truly resemble God, yet while not actually being divine. We are finite creatures that reflect the image and likeness of the infinite God. And so because we're created in God's image, there's a way in which we are like God that no other creature on earth is like God. But of course, it is also still a way in which we are not like God. Because we're not equal, we're not identical, right? And that's, the I think, the point we can take out of this. So what follows from that truth is those are those nice theological categories that we describe of communicable and incommunicable attributes. Communicable and incommunicable attributes. As image bearers, there are certain qualities of God that he communicates to us, that, that we image, that we reflect, like the Bible speaks of things like knowledge, righteousness, holiness. I can give more, but those are example qualities that we have in virtue of being in God's likeness and image. 
We call those things communicable attributes. But then you have other attributes that we call incommunicable attributes that are things that are unique to God in his being. For example, being infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. We don't possess those things, for example. Those are, again, examples. You can mention other ones. God's image elevates man's being without eliminating the creator-creature distinction. That's very important to understand. It elevates our being, but it doesn't eliminate the creator-creature distinction. Looking again at that poetry in verse 27, we see another aspect of mankind being made in God's image. It's that God made both male and female versions. Using some beautiful poetic parallels in there, we see it starts out saying that God made humans in general in his image. But he then expands the idea, male and female, he created them. So that humans are one kind of creature, but made up of these two types, male and female. On a related note, we shouldn't have any trouble understanding how both men and women can bear the image of God, the likeness of God, despite the fact that we have such noticeable differences in our physical appearances. Our, our physical images of a man and a woman, one's beautiful, one looks like me, right? Uh, <laughs> these are different physical outward images. But remember, God is not a physical body. And so we're surely right to especially think of the Imago Dei, the image of God, is especially something about how God has made the human soul to reflect God with spirit. We can understand more of what it means to be created in God's image as we look at the instructions that he gives man here. He gives the humans here in verse 26 uh, a focus on dominion. Dominion's a fancy word for rule. That you're the king. You're the lord of others. Humans reflect God's image when they serve as kings and queens over all the earth. In a sense, humans serve as, as gods to the earth. And I use that language point from Psalm 82, verse 6. God is the high king over all things. But he's put his image bearers here to be king over all things on earth. So verse 26 constrains the dominion. Notice how verse 26 constrains what he's saying he's putting under us. He says he sets over humans, the creatures of the sea, the birds of the air, and all the land creatures. In other words, he set over them all the living creatures that are mentioned explicitly here in the creation account. Now, I would think Psalm 8, verse 5, rightly, I think we can discern from that, in light of Genesis 1, Psalm 8, verse 5, would, would be to discern that humans have not been set over angels. God assigns us here as his image bearers over these earthly creatures, but not over angels. We'll talk more about that at the end of the sermon. Uh, when we come to verse 28, we see man's dominion further reference with additional instructions. There God blesses humans and he first instructs us to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. 
Then he tells us to subdue the earth and have dominion over it. Now, the first three things there, being fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, they really call us to reproduce and spread out throughout the earth. And if you take those three words, each of them could be used with broader meanings, used, used apart from each other. But in Scripture, when you see those words together, they, they generally have a reference to reproduction and, and, and increasing the number and spreading. And so it seems these are three repetitious ideas to emphasize this call to reproduce and propagate. Now, what's interesting about that, the threefold call of of, of fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, is he tells the same thing to the sea creatures and something similar to the birds for their realms, right? The sea creatures in the sea, the, the, the uh, birds in the air, and their realms are going to do that. But it's also interesting, he doesn't say that for the land animals. And a conclusion I think that we can draw from this. A couple of sort of related concepts here. This feature of reproduction is common to all these earthly creatures, including humans. And in that sense, even though humans are in the image of God and distinct and unique, there are also aspects that humans have some similarity with other created creatures, such as reproduction. But since land creatures are not told this same thing, go, people, multiply, fill the it's surely not that they're not supposed to propagate. But I think the, the silence on that is to recognize that their reproduction and filling the land has to be second to mankind's. Whatever spread of the land animals that happens on the earth, it must not be done in a way that displaces humans in the process. I think that's an inference we can take from this. And so verse 28 finishes by adding to the dominion idea Humans are not only to exercise dominion, but they are to subdue. Subdue. They're to fill the earth, subdue, and then exercise dominion. Uh, essentially, subduing is a prerequisite for full dominion, the fullest expression of that dominion. That word subdue, it means to bring something into subjection to you. To bring something into subjection to you often with a sense of conquering them in order to bring them into subjection to you. And so we only know what we know about how things were back then before the fall and all of that, but, but you know, we, we tend to see what's going on in the garden and think how wonderful things are, and yet uh, we might potentially not realize they still were called to do some sort of subduing aspect to the creation that even before the fall, God is telling his image bearers that as gods to the creation, they would need to subdue this earth and the submission to themselves. And I'll give you one example of an animal that needed some subduing. The serpent. Right? There you go. That's an example of an animal that needed some subduing. Such subduing would be part of how they were to be God's image bearers on earth. And I think a related idea is what I'll mention next is look at verse 29. I think this is another aspect of image, imaging God and, and, and also some part of the subduing idea. Because there it talks of our food for humans. And while it mentions the plants that bear seed and the trees that bear fruit with the seed, I can't help but see the emphasis on the seed component here. 
what's surely implied and brought out more next chapter is the, the work of agriculture. Humans should not only eat the seeds and the fruit, but they should use the seeds to farm. You don't see other animals farming like we humans do. The act of planting a seed that turns into a plant is another way of us finite image bearers mimicking God as his image bearers. It's not the same thing as God creatively speaking things into existence, but in our own little finite way, we plant a seed and something grows and becomes of it. I think it's another way we are image bearers and mimicking God as the creator. So then related to this idea of working because that's implying work right now. Sorry, I'm maybe jumping too quickly there. So you got plant seeds, it's work. I'll mention it next week as well. Work happens before the fall into sin. So if you ever think going to work is, a, is, is because we're sinners, we, we got cursed and now we have to work. No, even before the fall, work is a good thing. What happened after the fall is the cursing and, and the, the difficulty of our, of our work. But work is a good thing. So, so we have here this idea that working, including working in the field, God has given here in this creation week a pattern for man to follow as his image bearers. Of course, I mentioned this last week too, but God shows a pattern both of, of daily and, and weekly uh, uh, aspects. A uh, pattern in terms of the daily, right? You work and then you rest at night. And then having one day in seven as a special day of rest, holy unto the Lord. Mankind, as we follow that pattern of God here in the creation, we again, we image God. And even more wonderful than in 2 verse 3 is when God specifically references that seventh day as something to be holy. We are reminded then that part of man's image is that holiness idea. That we are, well, God is holy. Holy being set apart. God is set apart, meaning he's totally different than the rest of the, the, the creation. He's the creator. He's set apart from the creation. And so we as his image bearers, while we are still part of the creation, we're set apart from the rest of that earthly creation, right? And so we have this sense of holiness in our relation to the rest of the creatures. Uh, but, but then this idea where we can now worship God, have fellowship with God, Praise God, and even and especially in that idea of one day set apart to be holy and to particularly enjoy such things on that day. Uh, of course, that, that's a creation ordinance that we see here really continuing to be expressed now under the new covenant on, on the Lord's Day, uh, as we see uh, in the, in the uh, New Testament. It's part of being an image bearer that we get to enjoy that holiness. So these are all various aspects of what it means to be in God's image. And oh, there's so much I wanted to do with this again, so I had to constrain myself. I'm going to offer six short little practical applications that we can take from being image bearers. One, one application. You ever say I don't give application? This is your chance. Write it down. One is God is our master. We are stamped with his image. And just like Jesus gave that analogy, coins stamped with Caesar's image belong to Caesar. We have been stamped with God's image and we belong to God. Well, we are, 
as I said, so to speak, gods to this earth, we serve at his pleasure. We answer to him. We're under shepherds. That, of course, what follows from that, it would reject the false doctrine of humanism that makes man of prime importance instead of God. A second application is this rejects radical environmentalism or any form of naturalism that would effectively equate humans with the other animals. Some such advocates even speak of what they call, it's hard to pronounce, speciesism. Speciesism, you know, like you got racism, you got speciesism. They say it's evil for humans to think of themselves as more important than animals. <coughs> now, this is not to say that humans should maltreat this world as God's image bearers. We should be exercising faithful stewardship of this world that He's entrusted to us. But still, creation should be in service to man, not man in service to creation. A third application, biological sex is binary. God made humans here either male or female. Our gender and how we express that is to be rooted in that fact, whether you are male or you are female. That's what you are. And as humans have exercised the image of God in the subject of biology, we've even seen this reality inherent to our own DNA. A fourth application is the equality of the sexes. Next chapter, we'll get into some of the differences of male and female, even some of the different roles and relationships between the two. But this isn't one of them. This isn't one of the differences. This is one of the, the, the similarities. Ontologically, in terms of our being, our essence, our nature, man and woman are both human and therefore both image bearers. There's no room for men to treat women as lesser beings or vice versa. Any such misogyny or misandry is a sinful degradation of God's image. A fifth application is that marriage is between a man and a woman, with a key part of it being for the purposes of procreation. We'll see more of that institution next chapter. This does not mean that there's an absolute requirement for any and all people to get married or that there's an absolute requirement for any and all marriages to reproduce. It's not saying that, but marriage is an institution rooted here in chapter 1 as part of being image bearers. Humanity will not be able to fulfill the command to fill and subdue and exercise dominion of the earth apart from procreation. And as we'll see next chapter, that procreation is to be expressed in the institution of marriage between a male human and a female human. A sixth application, this speaks against all wicked treatment against other humans, especially the unjust taking of life. Things like premeditated murder, abortion, manslaughter, suicide, assisted or otherwise, is the unjust taking of an image bearer's life. Genesis 9-6, we'll get there, specifically says that that's wrong because of man being in God's image. And James then extends the idea in a, in a, in a farther application. He says in James 3, verse 9, it's wrong to even curse other humans 
Why? Because they're made in the image of God, Jesus said. So the image of God in humanity speaks to why we should treat one another with dignity. Because God's image in us brings such fundamental dignity. Of course, therein lies the problem. Our last point for today, I want us to reckon with the fact that man has marred this image in our fall into sin. It has not been completely lost, but it has been defaced. Since the fall, God's image in mankind is in desperate need of restoration. Otherwise, God's plan for how we would be his image and his creation would, would never come to its full intended fruition. God had a plan. He had a plan to redeem a people out of this fallen humanity. And in them to restore his image and fulfill his ultimate intention for creation. That plan involves sending forth a new image bearer, God himself and his son. Taking on a human nature, born by the overshadowing of the spirit, Jesus is the second Adam. This Jesus would be an image bearer that would not fail or fall. He would come and suffer and die in the place of us fallen image bearers. That all who come unto him in faith would become new creations. So that all who are in Christ would have the image of God restored to its full glory, ultimately speaking. That's what the New Testament declares to us. Passages like 2 Corinthians 4.4, Colossians 1.15, Hebrews 4.2. I don't have it on my notes here, but I think John 1 gets at this idea. This idea that Christ Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the exact imprint of God's nature. Jesus even advances this concept of, of the image of God to something even more wonderful as he's God in the flesh. Not only will we Christians be renewed in God's image, but the Bible goes even further. It says that Christians will be made into the image of Christ. That's better than just being renewed in what we had in Adam. All humans descended from Adam have received the image from Adam. Genesis actually says this in 5 verse 2. We'll see it when Adam has Seth, his son. It says that Adam bore Seth in his own image. But if we're in Jesus, in the second Adam, we're being made into Christ's image. Don't take my word for it. 1 Corinthians 15, 49 says, Paul says, just as we've been born, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, talking about him, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, speaking of the second heaven of Jesus. Just as we've borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So much we could say about why that's better. But Hebrews 2 gives us one. We read it earlier. Hebrews 2 helps us understand this. There, remember, quoted Psalm 8. And it said that the Son of God came into this world as a human, 
made for a little while a little lower than the angels. In other words, in taking on humanity, he took on that lower position, even of being under angels for a time. But then Hebrews speaks of how afterwards Jesus Christ ascended up into heaven and is seated at God's right hand. Jesus is now seated at the highest place. In other words, even above angels. In other words, now for us to be made in the image of Christ is to ultimately move beyond what we have even here in Genesis 1. We're being put not just over the creatures on this earth, but over all things under God, even including angels. We see that confirmed in other places in Scripture, like in 1 Corinthians 6, 3, Paul says, don't you know that we'll even judge angels? This is because we're not restored simply in the image and position of the first Adam, but into the image and position of the man of heaven. Jesus, who now has been exalted to the highest place over all created things. Ephesians 2, 6 even says, right now, if we're in Christ, there's a sense in which we're already seated with Jesus in the heavenly places. That's amazing. Trinity Presbyterian Church, in conclusion, God has made humans in his image. Let us show dignity to every man and woman because of the image of God. And as image bearers, let us look to exercise proper dominion and stewardship in this world, following God's pattern of work and rest. And as Christians, then, we now bear the image of Christ to a fallen world. Our task ought no longer to be just to work and rest as lords of this creation, but also and especially as work and rest as lords of the new creation in Christ Jesus. Part of that is to call all of fallen humanity to look to find their image restored in Jesus, which inherently means we'll have to look to graciously expose how they have perverted that image. But let us, by the grace of God, be that image of Christ to the world around us. Lord God, we do affirm the dignity of human beings because we've, we've been created in your image. We confess how we have contributed to the obscuring of that image. But all the ways that we live, not like a son of God, but like a, like a son of the devil. Or we pray, thank you for forgiving us. Thank you that you are renewing that image in us. That we would be looking more and more like Jesus. And so we ask that the Spirit would continue such work in our hearts that we might ultimately be the image of Christ to the world around us, that we bear witness to him, his saving work, heralding the gospel of his kingdom, and calling people to find new life in him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.